Hello and welcome to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Oswald, and I hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better public land hunter, angler, and forager. Stick with this and who knows, maybe we will learn something together. All right, folks, we are back with another episode of Publicly Challenged. I am here with Clay Bowers and... Patrick Durkin. Patrick, would you go ahead and introduce yourself for everybody listening? Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, um, Pat Durkin is my name, of course. You just said that. I live in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. I've been a, I've been a reporter and outdoor writer since about, um, I think my first article published was 1982. May, of, probably like March of 82, I was in college then. But then I started working for, for the local newspaper, too, about the same time. While I was still in college. So my first eight years I spent working as a author, writer and editor. And basically I was a, a jack of all trades, the newspaper in Oshkosh called the Oshkosh Northwestern. Um, along the way, I was often interviewing a guy up in Appleton, Wisconsin named Al Hofacker. And Al was one of the original founders of Deer and Deer Hunting magazine. And they, Deer and Deer Hunting hired me in, in 1990, right at the end of 1990, to be their their editor and i did that for 11 years um and after after working at deer and deer hunting for 11 years i spent the last 22 years now freelancing full-time and so i my freelance work i've all all, all my years now i've i've um i started writing that my outdoor column back in 1984 for the, for the oshkosh paper and all during my years at the at deer and deer hunting magazine and and all through the present time I've written that weekly outdoor column every week for um, like 40, almost 40 years now without ever missing a week. Oh, so no kidding. My, I'm real, I'm real proud of that because it, it takes commitment to write every week, you know, no matter what. And so I've done that and I, in, in, in recent, but for many years, um, I also did a lot of editing for people. I, I was a, a copy editor for the Archery Trade Association for, Oh gosh, almost almost twenty years, um, helping them out on. You know, I'd work with their writers, and um, quite often the ATA would have new you know new writers out of college, and it was kind of my job to give them some on the job training and um, school them on how to do you know, basic writing, good good news report news writing basically. And but in the last um, five six years, I've been one of the primary contributors for Meat Eater too on their website. So I've uh, I've had a I've had a fun career. I've always been working with um interesting publications and interesting people and the the outdoors beat is just uh, I, like I I um look at my job as covering the outdoors as as a news beat. And I, one of my jobs as as a writing the newspaper column is to provide commentary on um basically mostly Wisconsin issues, you know, Wisconsin political issues that involve the outdoors. And the one, the one thing I always t- tell people is when they get mad about um something I write, you know, they'll say, you know, they don't want to know about the politics. And I always tell them, well, in, in the United States, you know, it's our former government that this is what we do. You know, we, we, we're in a free society and people argue, we, we debate our, our topics openly. And this is, you know, you know, instead of trying to trying to squash me or, or you know, you should just argue with me, you know, right back. And this is this is the process we, we're engaged in. And 
I just don't think it's possible for people who live in live in the United States to um, not have politics in their in their daily lives because it's it's our system of government and our you know I, I just think it's kind of a fun thing about um living in this country is that we get to express our views and uh, hash things out and you hope you do it with enough mutual respect for we make progress you know over time. So that, that, that's basically my job is um you know like I say I it's as a freelancer that the biggest difference between that and a regular job is you you have to be um willing to work um seven days a week and the, the joke among most freelancers is that it's you know your hours are flexible you, you get to choose which 12, 12 to 14 hours a day you want to work every day because it's <laughs> you know it's it's um if you ever um try to coast as a freelancer, you'll, you probably won't make enough money to, to get by. You have to really, really work at it. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so um, I have a question for you. Sure. Based on what you just said. Um, so I also am like a very big fan of the um, inquisitive nature and, and arguing about things or debating rather. Um, but it seems like the world that we live in i know this isn't hunting related uh-huh. but does the world feel to you like like it does i i'm 40 right now it uh-huh. feels it feels to me like when i was younger you could actually just like hang out with people who might not share your same political view and you could still be friends um but nowadays it just it yeah. seems like that that is completely gone yeah i don't know if it's completely gone but it's it's, it's um I have to say it, it really saddens me when we when I see how belligerent um people get and they want you to agree with them or else they want to crush you. That that comes across a lot, you know, where they either either you're in a hundred percent or you're not at all. And I just mm-hmm. don't I just don't I hope that's a temporary thing because it's just not a realistic way. It's not sustainable f- for for people to live that way. You know, that's yeah. that's um that's just not not something that's part of the American history. You know, I, I, I liked one of the, one of my last, one of my life, lifelong lessons. I remember getting this when I was like 13 years old. My is, I hope it's not too long of a story, but a little, little story that kind of gives my point, my perspective is that um, my family had a German shepherd when we were kids and the dog got accused of biting a neighbor kid and ended up in a lawsuit where um, for like two days, um, our family sat in court in a courtroom and, and um, listened to these arguments back and forth about did this dog bite this neighbor kid or not? And various people came in and testified. I even had to give a little testimony because I remember I was with a dog that night during the time of supposedly biting this kid. But anyway, as as a as the as as two days were wrapping up, my dad took us out for lunch, and he said, "Now when you go back in this afternoon, then to make their the lawyers will make their comp- concluding remarks." They're closing their closing comments. He said, just watch them now and you'll think they don't like each other. You'll think they hate each other by the things they say in these closing remarks. But he said that the thing that you should know is that when this is all over with, those two guys will be sitting in this bar right now that we're sitting at and they'll be having a drink. And because that's how how professionals act, you know, they they. They give it their best shot. They argue their best, make their best arguments. And then they shake hands and go on, go go home and um, go about their business. And I always thought that was a um, a good way of looking at how we should op- operate as a society. That we we make our arguments, but we come together at some point and um, compromise. And that's just 
a good realistic way of go, going about life. I think that you don't, you can't always win. And I, I just think that's how we should be, should be doing things. So I, I still try to give, when I write, I still try to give my honest thoughts on stuff, but with the idea that I, I want to um, back it up with, with as much um, factual information as I can pull together for that short space. Cause it, it's not like you can write a book every week, you know, you only have a, a certain amount of words you're allowed to, to, to crank out there in newspapers. Cause I, I, I grew up in, in newspapers my career has been in newspapers and newspapers, unlike today with the internet, there's a finite space to fill. And it, it's, you know, it was always called a, the news hole and you had mm-hmm. to fill that hole, but then anything that, anything overflowed from that hole, this got left out. It didn't get in, you know, so that was a, a good way to learn about writing tightly too. Anyway, that to answer your question, I I don't like the way it's gone. I don't I don't like the way um people are so in, um my way or the highway these days. And I because I, I just don't think that's how our country um got to where it is and it's not sustainable, you know, if, if, to only have one point of view and think that's gonna carry us through the rest of the rest of our um existence here. Yeah, I agree with you on that. Like one of the things that happened um, before Clay came on, but I posted a picture of one of my deer. And I just, I really appreciated it. It was artistic. There wasn't any blood. There wasn't anything, but it was just the way the deer laid, the way the deer landed and fell on the ground, and how I came walking up. The light was coming in perfect. The f- shot was mm. just frame, frame perfect. So I, in my head, was like, I need to capture this. I did. I filmed it, you know, put it on, on social media, and it was like one of my most liked posts I've ever had. So, of course, with that came a lot of hate as well huh. and negative comments. Yeah. And it didn't even bother me. It bothered my wife uh-huh. more than it bothered oh, me right. as she was looking right. at it. And she's like, how are these people talking to you like this? How is that even okay that in society we can tell people we want to kill them, burn their house down? How about I shoot you with an arrow, all these different things? And I said, none of that matters because they don't have any perspective. Mm-hmm. Anybody can sit behind a keyboard and argue with somebody. But if they want to have right. an actual conversation... Let's sit down and talk about it in a civil manner. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I said that, a light bulb went off in my head. And I messaged the lady. And I said, in front of everybody that commented on everything, if you'd like to discuss this further in a civil manner, I host a podcast. I would love to have you on and get your perspective. And we can discuss things like, things like adults. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, yeah. it was just crickets. And that's yeah. not what I wanted. I actually yeah. wanted her right. to come on, yeah. you know, generate well, one content yeah. and two, have a conversation. Yeah. And I'm guessing the way you went about it probably is um, that you were polite about it. You were friendly about it. I- I've had people um, on podcasts in different parts of the, different parts of the country who um, didn't like something I wrote and their invitations to appear on their podcast were so hostile. I thought, what what do I have to gain by going on a, on a podcast with someone who's just gonna go out of their way to uh, humiliate me? Because you can right. just tell that was, that it wasn't they weren't going into it with uh, the spirit of um, let, let's have a have a honest debate here. It's more like you know let me get you on your on my podcast so I can beat the crap out of you. Right. That's kind of how <laughs> how it came across. And so like t- to me though, if a guy were to invite me on and say you know we, we don't agree with you on this, but like to hear your perspective and talk about it and do it in a friendly way then i'm more than open to, to, to appearing and talking and but unfortunately <laughs> you just tell it was more like 
Um, this guy was already crossways with me. Had his basically, had, yeah. You just picture his fists were up <laughs> and ready to come after me. And I thought, I I can't. Uh, you know how how can that be constructive for anyone? Yeah, that's kind of like the conversation that Clay and I were actually having, which is a huge hot button issue that you, you were listening in on before uh-huh. <laughs> before we started the podcast about, about crossbows. <laughs> yeah, or... about crossbows and hunting uh-huh. and allocation yeah. of tags along with that. That right. is a huge yeah. issue for a lot of people, and they oh, get right. so heated on it. And I mean, there is data on both sides of the aisle there. Sure, but I mean, let's come together and agree upon something, not yeah. just fight and say it doesn't shouldn't exist. And you know, yeah. anybody that's not disabled shouldn't be able to shoot one nobody knows what stage of life somebody else is in or you know where they're at like right. for me i call i mean you probably heard me say i think they're a great gateway drug but <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> well the, you know the, the thing i can assure you is that uh, people have been fighting about crossbows since long before you guys were around and probably long before i was around but you know back when um i remember you know, the crossbow usage in this country really wasn't a whole, there's only like two or three states for many years that allowed crossbows. You know, it was Ohio, Arkansas, and, and Wyoming were the three states for the longest time that the only ones that, to allow crossbows for deer hunting. And then in Wyoming, a lot of them for elk hunting. And then um, starting around 2003, 2004, you know, the gates started opening up. And, and I like to say that, you know, the question I often ask, ask the crossbow critics is, you know, how does this how does this really affect you? How is this hurting you? And because I, I still like shooting a compound bow, I I have a couple of crossbows, not killed deer with them, but when it comes down to shooting in the backyard and going out out west and hunting elk, the cross the compound bow is still God, it's a fun thing to hunt with, right? Yeah, <laughs> but 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 I don't. I can honestly say, though, I don't think I shoot that um, crossbow any more accurately offhand than, than I do my my compound bow. If I can get a rest, I can shoot that crossbow pretty accurately compared compared to a, a compound. But shooting it offhand in the typical hunting situations that we find ourselves in, the compound bow, I think the, the way you can set those things up, get them to full draw, lock in, and bear it on, they're 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 deadly i i remember the first time i shot one in 19 i can almost feel it it was like 19 1970 summer summer 1974 was the first time i had a compound bow it was one of these old allen compound bows and i was just amazed after shooting a recurve <laughs> for a number of years all yeah. of a sudden you get this get this and that allen compound bow you'll laugh at it but we thought it was revolutionary for the draw weight to drop from 50 pounds to 40 pounds that you're you're holding 40 pounds and drawing 50 and we thought that was just magical stuff <laughs> well that is you know? compared to like an oneida or one of the i don't remember what the other ones were called but the uh-huh. the ones that had like the recurve limbs on the yeah the first right, compounds right. those were full draw weight the whole time you know and then you had guys like the wenzels that were out you know out in Pennsylvania and shooting tires rolling down the hill with a, a balloon taped in them and using those yeah. things and just yeah. amazing feats of uh, yeah. archery. And then uh, yeah. you've got guys like us just sitting in a tree stand trying to do it and pull back. <laughs> yeah. Different well, skill set. Not me. I don't, I, I use the old uh, crossbow. Have uh-huh. you ever tried you a do, compound huh? though? I own like some 1980s crossbow that I bought at a, um, <laughs> At like a garage sale 
uh-huh. for like for like one dollar and um mm. I, I think it's like a 50 pound crossbow or sorry uh compound bow and um i'm no good with it it doesn't have any sights on it it doesn't have anything uh-huh. it, it's all like when i shoot with it it's all like intuitive shooting like you would with like a recurve which huh. honestly is probably okay within 20 yards but if you try and stretch out any more than that trying to figure mm-hmm. out the trajectory of that arrow and everything else pretty hard mm-hmm. to do yeah. plus anchor yeah. point all that changes so then you've got more variations if if you weren't you know if you had like a, a recurve or something as long as your anchor point's the same and you know you got the right swing string twist on your so your bow's actually technically tuned um mm-hmm. you, you would be way better off with a recurve intuitively shooting than you would with you know compound equipment because it's just it's not designed for that yeah. So yeah. so many variables. <laughs> mm-hmm. We'll get you set up, Koi. You'll you'll start yeah, shooting well, a because what I find funny is I shot um I think it was a Pearson or um oh gosh, I can't think. I think it was it was like a Pearson um compound bow that was like a late nineteen eighties, early nineties compound bow. I got it, you know, sometime late nineties and started shooting it. And in my mind, I still think I shot that better, even though it didn't have, you know, the adjustable sight. It was, you know, the little tiny pins with the little plastic dot or pa- mm-hmm. a little paint on that tip of it and yeah. the brass pins. Yeah. I used to shoot that thing. And I remember taking, going to the archery range and up to 30, 40 yards, headshots, shooting all the 3D targets in the eye, putting the arrow and just amazing shot with it. Wow. I think the difference is, and you know, expensive compound equipment. You know, shooting my Matthews now versus that, whatever. The only thing that's changed is I used to shoot that bow ten times as much as I shoot my bow now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. That. Um, that's my biggest thing. As I talked about on the last podcast that we recorded, is just the lack of practice that I get with the bow. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and um, I. I do feel like, um, as you were saying a minute ago, a rest for your crossbow. I, I always carry around a uh, shooting stick, whether I'm oh, shooting yeah. with a rifle or a uh, crossbow. I like mm-hmm. to uh, I like to put it on a shooting stick. Yeah. Um, I mean, I even when I go squirrel hunting, I almost never shoot freehand. I'll push my gun up against this tree yeah. or something like that. I just yeah. I I think I prefer a little bit more of a steady shot. I, I don't know if I got like, um, you know, shaky hands or something, but it's just like, I, I shoot a lot better when I got something. to Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I do have a question though, in regards to you, you're pushing buttons and your facts that you were talking about. Uh-huh. Um, I was just listening to another podcast. They were talking all about you. They were talking uh-huh. about wolves. What do you oh, got sure. to say about wolves? Um, <laughs> uh- well, where, where can we start? The, um, I guess I guess my bottom line on wolves and all all the um, the predators is I, I get I get a lot of people. Um, it's it's a real tough, touchy subject, and what, one of my little comments I've made over the years, um, you know, what what one observation I've had after many years of outdoor writing is that um, uh, first of all, first comment I make is deer make people stupid we can (laughs) we can have wonderful discussions about managing um waterfall walleyes um raccoons beavers you name it we can have just real level-headed conversations 
let me get discussing deer. And all of a sudden, all rationality seems to kind of just instantly get vaporized when we start arguing and getting mad. So that's my first thought is deer make people stupid. The second thing I've found in for most of my life, most of my career is that turkeys, nobody seems to get too mad about turkeys. We they, So I say turkeys make people happy. You know, in Wisconsin, it seems like oh, anytime there's any turkey news, people are happy. They just don't complain about um, how many turkeys we have, at least not in Wisconsin. Elsewhere, I know it's an issue, but Wisconsin tends to be people are overall happy about turkeys. But then wolves make people mad. And they, mm-hmm. um, and it seems like the the wolf um, huggers are always mad at anyone who, who wants to even think about hunting wolves or trapping wolves. And then there's uh, people... Um, in the hunting community who just want to get rid of them. And and my, my position is always that wolves were here long before we were. Um, we basically came through a period of time there in the, in the 1900s where we got rid of them. But um, they were here before we were, and they came back on their own. There's, there's, you know, people like to think that uh, they want to, oh, I said the DNR brought the wolves back, but the DNR basically all it did was um, got laws passed where it's illegal to kill them. And then the wolves eventually just started trickling back in from northeastern Minnesota. And northeastern Minnesota never was out of wolves. They always had wolves up there. And as they started recolonizing um, Wisconsin, they eventually got to the point where they moved up into the UP of Michigan and repopulated the UP. But they really have not pushed very far into um, central and southern Wisconsin. We have a few in southern Wisconsin, um, wandering through typically, and a few living in central Wisconsin, but they seem to be settling in the areas that they can, um, where they can survive. And that's causing problems, of course, you know, when you have people and you have livestock and you have pets, wolves kill some of them. And when you have bear hunters with hounds, sending hounds out in the woods, wolves kill some of those dogs too. And it's, um, I, I just, I always think, well, if it were my dog, I'd be mad too. But I think this is one of the um, tough things about, um, I think, living in, in a democracy and living with um, among other people who have different ways that they want to use our resources, whether it's the forests, um, the the, um, the bears that we're hunting with, with hounds, whatever it might be. We, I, I always talk about how we're very good at, um, we have in, in our states like Wisconsin and Minnesota and Michigan, we have lots of public land uh, compared to, to most people, but then all we do is fight about who, who gets to use it and how. <laughs> and so uh, it's, it's um, we're forever fighting about who should, who should be um, the, the alpha male or whatever it might be in, in all, these, all these public lands. So when I see people getting mad about wolves, I think, you know, we might just get used to the idea that they're going to be here as long as we are now. We are not, that the rest of society, even if we could get rid of wolves again, wouldn't wouldn't tolerate it now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that's just the reality of the modern world that that we're living in, and to think we're, we're going to somehow ever get wolves driven out of here again, it's not going to happen. So I'm I'm a big proponent of wildlife management, and and the wolves I think should be managed too. And if it, but the, the, but then we get down to arguing about well how many wolves, and <laughs> I just. If we can ever find consensus on that, I guess I'll be surprised. But I, but I don't think the way to do it is just to be um, so antagonistic that we don't talk to each other. 
And I think sometimes we've done things in Wisconsin that I think if you're, if you're real, if your real interest is a long-term solution, you're not going to get a long-term solution when you're always in court fighting about this stuff. And so we have to get, we have to get the wolf off the endangered species list, get it back in the state management. And then, then I think, then, then we can have some, I think, intelligent discussions about how many and where and all those kind of discussions. But I, I, um, uh, for people who follow the Wisconsin issues, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I believe in, uh, I support the current management plan. I hope we get back to where we can start having wolf seasons again. And like, I, I was one of those lucky guys who drew a wolf tag back in 2012 mm-hmm. when we had our first season. And I learned over the course of the next month or so, I wasn't very, wasn't open very long. I think it, I think that first season only lasted about five, six weeks. And you had to kind of, bounce around looking for areas where there's still a quota open. And the thing I learned is that I'm not a very good um, predator hunter. I'm, I've always <laughs> been a deer hunter and I had a lot to learn about um, trying to, trying to um, call wolves. So I, I probably sound like an idiot out there, you know, doing my imitations of wolves. But, but at the same yeah. time though, it um the fun thing about it is I got to meet some new people and I got to hang around with a couple of real serious trappers you know, and these guys were people who um, have inadvertently trapped wolves while trapping, you know, trapping coyotes mm-hmm. and get a wolf instead. And then you have to, you know, find a way to release it. And so, but it was, it was just for me, a real good educational opportunity that, that that's how I looked at it was I'm going to go out there and try my best to get a wolf with my tag. Mm-hmm. But in the process, I think I'll learn something. And now it's been 11 years since that opportunity. And who knows when we'll get another chance to, to hunt wolves, but um, yeah, I hope I don't know if I answered your if that was your what you're looking for, but it's uh, it's it's a, it's an interesting thing because I like I wrote about for um I wrote about um uh, I wrote a column just recently about a month ago, looking at the perceptions people have, and one of the comments that gets back to me quite often is that people will say, I'm getting far more pictures now of wolves than I am of deer. And I, I, by the time I got my most recent column, like or a letter like that, email like that, I just happened to um, know that within the week, the the DNR here in Wisconsin was going to be releasing a report on the uh, um, on the, the this, this thing called Snapshot Wisconsin, where, where the the Wisconsin DNR works with citizens to monitor trail cameras across the state. And you can't. And they have they have rules on where you can put the trail cams. They got they got basically be approved by the DNR, so it meets some parameters that they set on where they want these cameras placed. And then the people start reporting in and what they're seeing on the on those cameras and turning in their pictures. And and I, the data showed real clearly that, um, roughly speaking, <laughs> for every four hundred and some deer pictures we had, you'd get one wolf picture. You know, mm-hmm. so, you know, that, it, and it's not always, it's not uniform across the north like that, but overall, when you break it down in the, in the northern counties that have wolves, you know, like I say, it's for, for every wolf picture you had, you had over 400 deer pictures. And how that, that's not a population estimate, that, but that's just basically what shows up in front of a camera. And I'll always say that I I trust the deer biologists and the, and the bear biologists and the wolf biologists to know a lot more about what that means about the population status than I can interpret. Cause I'm not, a, I'm not a scientist. 
And I'll be the first one to admit that. So I'm kind of rambling there, but that that's um, one of the topics I addressed just recently was, you know, don't write, I basically was saying, don't, don't write to me and say, <laughs> all you're getting is, 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 is um, wolf pictures, because maybe that's true for you, but realize this is one person's perspective. And mm-hmm. there's many people out there across Northern Wisconsin and many properties and many trail cameras and, Obviously, when you pull them all together, that the deer num- deer pictures are swamping the wolf pictures, yeah. and that was kind of the 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 numbers I I um I sat there with my calculator and added up all these different colonies and broke it down and sent the article after I got the article written. I sent it off to to Steve Ranella and and his producer Corinne Schneider, and just said I thought you guys might find this interesting, and I was I was really flattered that they spent as much time. <laughs> on that topic as it did in, on this week's podcast. Yeah. That was one, really cool. One of the, oh, yeah. go ahead. No, go ahead, Luke. I was just going to say one of the things that I find fascinating in the new hot button issue other than wolves is actually mountain lions. And you just recently yeah. wrote an article about uh, <laughs> about yeah. uh, the guy that, that was in Wisconsin, right? That, it was, that yeah, killed... it was only, about, only about 60 miles from me. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, I know personally a lot of people that have had a mountain lion show up on their camera, but you think mm-hmm. about it, a lot of those guys live in the same area. It's the potential is very high for that mountain lion to be the same mountain lion showing up yeah. on these different trail right. camps. But um, right. can you kind of talk about that a little bit? And I mean, cause yeah. there was some hate mail for that too, wasn't yeah, there? Yeah, that was, that was really, that's, that's a continuing interesting issue. Um, the, this, this um, ha- happened down in Buffalo County, Wisconsin, which you guys probably know Buffalo County's claim to fame for oh, over 60, 70 years now. It's basically Wisconsin's big, big buck capital. You know, hmm. Buffalo County is, on, is number one in, in the nation for, for producing big whitetails. It's just had this real, um, it's, it's a real, it's, it's called the bluff country right along the Mississippi river. And it's big bluffs, good farm country, but also um, a lot of territory that's hard to hunt. So over the years, it's always had a good reputation for um, growing big bucks. But so it didn't really surprise me to hear that um, there's a a cougar um, roaming that area. We, we get, um, you know, one of the great things about trail cameras, getting back to trail cameras again, is that, They've they've given us insights into what's roaming the woods like nothing before. Before to prove you killed, to prove you saw a mountain lion before the era of uh, trail cams, basically you had to wait for one to get hit hit by a car or something. You know, <laughs> or, or um, I know the first one that was documented in Wisconsin as an actual cougar. A guy in southern Wisconsin walked into into his barn one day and saw his big cackle flying out the back back of the barn. And when the DNR came out, they were able to collect enough uh, hair samples. And uh, I think it actually had, had crapped in a few spots too. So they had some, mm-hmm. uh, some feces to, to, to evaluate. And sure enough, they documented that this, this was a mountain lion. As it turned out, that mountain lion ended up down in a Chicago suburb and the police ended up shooting it. Mm-hmm. And when, mm-hmm. when they got, when they got the hair samples off, off that dead cougar, um, they found it was the same one that had been in this um, count, this um, guy's barn in southern Wisconsin. But to get back to the Buffalo County Cougar, um, I think it was back on November 8th or thereabouts, <clears throat> a guy was bow hunting down in Buffalo County, and he had a decoy out at about, I think he said about 40 yards. And he saw something 
move over that in that direction. And he said, next thing you know, he's, he's looking over there and sees this big cat face looking at him. And he um, realized fairly shortly, this is not your average bobcat or some small cat. This is a, a cougar and it has a long tail and everything else. And the, the thing started um, you know, stalking him. And it, 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 it crouched down and would sneak, sneak some more put his tail, sneak some more, and kept getting closer and closer. And he was feeling threatened. And he um, ended up at, when the, when the cougar got within 13 yards, he figured <clears throat> as fast as they can be, one quick leap and it'd be up, up the tree after him. And he was really feeling like this thing was after him. And it wasn't looking at his decoy anymore. It, it basically put the decoy in his rearview mirror, was coming for him. And so he, um, when it was about 12, 13 yards away, he drew his bow and, and that took a, the next step. He shot it. And he, and, uh, he, after that, he, he just got out of the woods. It was, it was near dusk, went back to his, his car and drove home and notified the, the DNR. And he, he called the DNR tip line, called it in right away. And next morning, the uh, two wardens showed up, you know, and met him at the property with, I think he had, I think he had his brother along too, the guy. And so it's two wardens and a wildlife manager. And, and and this is where my reporting background, you kind of know how this is going to play out. You know, what, what law enforcement people do is they question the guy first, um, listen to a story, look around, kind of, you know, see if things are lining up with what he's telling them. And then once they've got enough information from the guy, then they, they take the next step of um, tracking the, the cougar. And then they find the cougar and they examine it and see if it all lines up with what he was telling them. And the thing I I, I wrote my my article about was that, you know, these these conservation wardens, like most law enforcement people, they've done lots of interrogations, lots of investigations. They tend to know when people are BSing them. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and and they um were when they talked to this guy and looked at the cougar, they were they were convinced that he's telling the tr- truth that he he feared for his life. He did not want the cougar. He never asked them if he could have it, and they just loaded it up in that one of these big um, uh, ice fishing type sleds, hauled it out of the woods, and um, talked to the DA and just decided that there's there's no violation here. Yeah, you know, you know, one thing in our country that's pretty universal is that. If your life is being threatened by a by an animal, whether it's a, a pet or a, or a wild animal, you're entitled to defend yourself. And they figured this guy acted acted um, responsibly, and they um, they just didn't had didn't have anything to, any reason to prosecute him. But you know what 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 imp- what really struck me working on this article was uh, how many people instantly prejudged the guy. <laughs> yeah, you know, they 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 never talked to him. They they hadn't read any any information about it other than a little basics about um, you know what what who what where when and why and and the why never gets answered in those kind of stories. But so I felt like you know here, um, I interviewed the warden supervisor. I interviewed a warden retired warden who actually interviewed the guy. The guy didn't. The guy would not talk to me. He um, just wrote to me real apologetically and said sent me a text message saying that he's basically burned out on the whole thing. He's been not sleeping because he's getting he's you know stressed about the whole situation and just was shutting down. He 
So I, I gave my one interview. I talked to the law enforcement people, and I just don't want to push any further. I want this kind of go away now. And mm-hmm. I tell you, I kind of respect that. And I, but I talked to the warden then that had interviewed him for the newspaper article that, that this warden wrote for Outdoor News, Wisconsin Outdoor News. And this is the guy's name is Dave Zeig. And I've known Dave since he was, you know, a warden himself back and, you know, during his working era, working days. I think Dave's only about seven or eight years older than me. I'm 60, I'll be 68 here in another month. But Dave, um, again, another professional warden who did a lot of investigations during his career. And he, he found the guy credible too. So I thought, well, you know, who are we to argue with three trained investigators who interviewed the guy? And took his testimony, saw the physical evidence, and made a conclusion. And their boss questioned them, the DA questioned them, and they all agreed that there's no story here as far as um, prosecution. But I'm still, you know, this won't surprise you guys, but I still get emails from people who have read my article, um, listened to my, or read my point of view on the thing, and basically tell me I'm I'm still naive and I don't know what I'm talking about and they know better and here's what he really did and I I just in those cases I just kind of shrug and go well I have nothing more to offer you know I I I put my information out there and if you don't want to buy it I can't I can't sell it you know I'm not trying to sell it I just figured, I just feel confident that um I told um as much of the story as I I can get my hands on and that it's uh. As about as complete as, as it will ever be, and so I, I feel good about this. You know, my um, my take on the thing that this guy was justified, and and the thing I'll say is, I wasn't there. I wasn't mm-hmm. there when that cougar was coming in. Maybe I would have acted differently for me. Maybe I wouldn't have shot it, but I'll never know because I wasn't there. Right. But he made a decision that he has to live with, and I think um, if the wardens are satisfied, I guess I'm I'm satisfied. Yeah. I, I've had encounters with bobcats, and mm-hmm. I'm afraid of a 35 pound little cat. You know what I mean? Because I yeah. I know the amount of damage that a little cat like that could do. I mean, just take for example your grandma's cat as a kid, and how much damage that cat could do to you as a little kid. Now <laughs> add you know add 30 pounds to that cat, and then add another 85 to 100 pounds right. To, to, right. to that bobcat. Yeah. I yeah. think I would change my mind too, especially knowing it can bound, you know, 15 feet right up that tree yeah. stand at you and pull you yeah. down. Absolutely. I've got a friend that was out West elk hunting and actually had, he was sitting glassing, decided to kind of lay back his eyes were strained and just took a brief moment of rest. He heard something. And so he turns over and looks, doesn't see anything, turns his head back, hears something again. And now the cat's making noise. And it's staring, looking right at him, and it's about 15 feet away from him. And from that 15 feet, he said he put his hand on his pistol, looked at the cat, yelled, and just started making himself big. And as soon as he did that and yelled, the cat actually bounded right at him. And he shot it. He goes, luckily, I bought a brand new 10 millimeter and practiced with it a few times. He goes, because I drew it. It was on my chest rig, shot the thing. And it was, you know, dead right in front of me. He goes, but if I wouldn't put those rounds, he goes, it hit me before it was actually, you wow. know, yeah. before it touched the ground, yeah. it hit me. Yeah. Well, I think, um, I'm sure somebody in law enforcement will correct me, but I think when they teach policemen um, their, their self-defense or, you know, when they have to take action 
to protect themselves. I think it's like at around 20 to 21 feet someplace in there where they figure a, a, a human who's motivated can can close that distance before you can act typically. To, you know, to actually, you know, draw the draw your your gun, get it aimed, and 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 make a shot. And then then I've read too that um the typical um that I think it's only like about thirty percent of of bullets fired by law enforcement people actually hit the target. You know, so it's a real it's a high stress situation. It's some something moving fast, and I think well that's just for humans dealing with a uh, um maybe some jacked up on drugs or something. And you're thinking, well, here's a cat, a mountain lion, with, you know, four legs, 128 pounds. That thing can probably move like lightning yeah. you know, at, at, at 13 yards. You know, I, I, I just, I have a hard time second guessing the guy that was actually there and now having to live with the um, yeah. annoyances of people second guessing him. You know, it's just, yeah. uh, it's, I'm, 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 <laughs> I'm glad it's not me. Yeah, for sure. What's weird though is it's such a hot button issue because you know there there is no tags allocated for them. You cannot hunt them. Yeah. In Wisconsin, but you go to a state like Colorado or something like that and or Montana, right? Where where there are tags and and uh you know, you call the conservation, they come out, they do an investigation, they fill out the report and it's just business as usual. Yeah. I mean, granted, there are a lot more attacks and sightings and stuff like sure. that out there, but it's just so weird how people here are so polarized and against yeah. it and so quick to judge. Yeah. And out there, it's, it's almost yeah, a common I, occurrence now. I, I should point out, too, uh, I, again, I, I'm pretty sure I'm right on this, but like Iowa doesn't doesn't protect cougars. They're not a protected species in Iowa. And they've they've at times talked about making them a protected species like Minnesota does and Wisconsin does. And basically Minnesota and Wisconsin, you're not allowed to shoot them unless unless they're you know they're threatening property or, or life. And and um Iowa though has never had a protection on a mountain line. So basically if, if you see one in in Iowa, um you, you can shoot it without any you don't have to justify it. They're basically not protected, and from what I from what I understand, it's because the um, when they have tried to bring it up in the legislature to, to get, grant them that kind of protection that that other states give them, the the agricultural community, you know, says you know we don't want to deal with cougars attacking our livestock, and why should we protect you know something that could kill our livestock, <laughs> and so that it's never gotten anywhere, and wow. yeah. You know, so I, I think you know there's different different values that we have in different different parts of the country, and I I, I think well you know like we were talking about earlier about the whole um, arguing and debating stuff. Well, in Iowa, you'd probably lose that argument. You know, <laughs> you know you, that well we don't think they should be protected. Where Wisconsin and, and uh, Minnesota they they're protected. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I, I'm always blown away by is um, you watch these videos online. And everybody's freaking out about the mountain lion encounters. But what I'm freaking out about is who has the wherewithal to bring out their cell phone and turn it on uh, and record this while it's happening? Like, yeah. I, I, that would be the last thing that would cross my mind. Oh, I need to get this on video. That's, a mountain lion. <laughs> that's yeah. what's messed up about the, the time we're living in and the society and how it's yeah. evolved to 
They want to doc, document everything, put it on social media. Their phone comes out before they have the wherewithal to dial 911. They record yeah. somebody. They stand by and watch somebody get mugged rather yeah. than, you know, maybe yell at the person or try and stop them or draw yeah. their attention away from the person being attacked. It's just yeah. that's it's a weird place we're living well, in, but that's where we're yeah, at. And, and <laughs> I, when, I, when you say that, I think, too, how um... – Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, which is the one I like, and Keto. Get started today and get after your goals. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are ready to heat and eat so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 and use the code waypointpod50 to get 50% off. That's waypointpod50 at factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 to get 50% off. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I heard that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com waypoint. That's mintmobile.com waypoint. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com waypoint. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Personally, I... <laughs> I'm always amazed that people can have that um, awareness to, to pull out the phone and actually even be thinking about it, <laughs> recording it. Because I think, I don't know how many times in my recent um, travels and um, bumping into people, uh, old friends or it might be, that you'll sit there and have a conversation with them. You're so happy to see them. Then you split, walk away, and a, a half hour later you think, ah. Oh, we should have gotten a picture of ourselves together because we haven't, haven't seen this guy for 20 years, you know, and 30 years, whatever it might be. And and yet, you know, some people have the wherewithal. The first thing that comes to mind is, that's a selfie. Well, and let's, let's uh, record this. And it you it have... just hasn't really become part of my my um, my MO or whatever. I've seen, I, I've I, seen I, um, you take some selfies too, I, I... <laughs> in the grocery store yeah, oh, before. I, I do it all the time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I... I I, it's funny. It's I'm real inconsistent. It's it's sometimes I think about, it and sometimes it's yeah. So I, I would never be able to predict what I'll do next. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Clay and I like to live in the moment so much. A lot of times we forget. Lately, he's been he documents a lot more than I do, though. I think. <laughs> I um I actually have to purposely remind myself to take pictures of my kids. Yeah, because <laughs> because I'm uh you know my my gal Madeline she. Her phone is just chock full of pictures of of uh, the kids, but then I'll be like looking through my phone, and it's like nothing but plants and uh, mushrooms. <laughs> oh, because you're foraging. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and deer. <laughs> yeah, that's and, what well, I and, and, 
and yeah and deer and you know beavers because i also you know like i i do trap and and hunt and stuff too but yeah predominantly yeah. when i'm taking pictures of things it's really yeah. a lot of plant a lot of plant life and mushrooms yeah um, and then i'll be like god not many pictures of my kids in here <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, gotta, I gotta like remind myself oh yeah i'm with my kids hey let's take a picture yeah 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 so what's so i'll go ahead i didn't mean to no i was gonna say i, I was gonna say um i i did want to ask you um one more thing about the uh, the wolf thing, and that's uh-huh. um, historical records. You know, show like you were you made some reference to this earlier, but uh-huh. um, Lewis and Clark expedition. You know, they were going across the country. There's wolves everywhere. There's a uh, you know what some people call the um, extinct plains grizzly. I don't know mm-hmm. if it was actually a separate species, but some people believe it was. And then there's uh, mountain lions everywhere. Mm-hmm. Well. There's also conversely this giant abundance of elk and deer and all other game animals. So what is the disconnect there with like people in the past? I'm sure they associated wolves with some level of threat to like the amount of game out there, but they also didn't seem to be as, as worried about it as we do in the modern era. We have far less of them. Well, I I'm not a wolf historian, but what, from what I from what I gather is that um, a lot of the fears and um, animosity we we have against wolves we brought over from Europe. I mean, there there are records of um, wolves um, apparently killing people in pretty good numbers at times in in, uh, in um, old time Germany and some of these um, European countries, and because wolves haven't disappeared from you know wolves you can find wolves in in um sweden norway italy i think spain you know they've been around you know they're down even into the, some of the middle eastern countries and 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 they have um they have they have a record of, of killing people so it does happen when people act like i mean it's not it's not common at least not in modern times but um you know there is some there is some decent historical records of um wolves killing people and then people coming to our country and carrying that um that hatred and fear with them you know as as moved across this country but i i um i don't you know i think there, i can think of about um a couple of you know famous cases in in one in canada not that long ago where wolves killed a guy and so it does happen but i the thing i'll point out is that for Wisconsin, the typical complaint you hear about wolves is that they're killing all the deer, but the research that's been done so far, and I, I'll never, and there, you know, we can always do more research. There's always more things to be learned, but the the initial re- reports and research we did in Wisconsin was that bl- black bears kill uh, account for most of the predation on on uh, whitetail fawns. When mm-hmm. when fawns when fawns drop, bears are out in the spring. They're hungry. And they are very good at targeting fawns in in that week or two period when they're when the fawns aren't fast enough to get away from them or they're just hiding and they their black bears can be real methodical in, in hunting them down and finding them after they're born and, and and killing them. But you know, Steve Rinella makes a good good point that um people in Wisconsin are used. To to bears bears never went away in wisconsin mm-hmm. and so we kind of accepted the fact that um bears kill kill fawns 
you know, we never doc until recently never documented it very well, but it's just they're part of the landscape. They've always been here for for our um grandparents' era and our era. And so that we're just kind of familiar with them. But wolves are a more recent thing. Wolves were pretty much gone from this state during the 1970s. And they really just came back real slowly in the 80s. And it wasn't until like the mid-90s where they really started taking off. And now they're at a point where um I had a, had a discussion with a guy yesterday. He was um, <laughs> making some sarcastic comments about, well, if people in, in southern Wisconsin want love wolves so bad, why don't we send them some? And my <laughs> and my point with him was great idea. Now, why should we spend money? <laughs> why should Wisconsin spend money shipping wolves down to southern Wisconsin? That they, they walked into Wisconsin from Minnesota on their own. So if they really want to live in southern Wisconsin, they'll they'll figure it out. You know, we don't know yet that they'll stop and not infiltrate the, the our southern counties. Maybe they will, but something tells me though that they seem to have kind of stabilized in their current um, northern Wisconsin environments and the central forest Wisconsin. There, there's some there too, but they really have they'll wander into the other parts of um, southern Wisconsin. They don't seem to be hanging around and, and sticking there. But the thing I'll say is, you know, they've surprised us before. Maybe they'll surprise us again and 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 move into the, into more of those counties because there's plenty of food down in southern Wisconsin as far as deer goes. There's more deer in southern Wisconsin than there is in the the forest. So you know, I um never say never. You know, maybe that wish will come true, and then we can all have have uh, more things to, to argue about. And you know, it's. it's I I'm will, I'm willing to uh, to watch and let it play out as guess guess is all, all I'm saying. Yeah, I I mean I wish they'd reintroduce bison and everything else as well, you know. Well, but yeah, but well, uh, well, that's that, that's really um I think an int- an interesting discussion item is that you know where do we want to draw a line and all these different species to reintroduce? I mean. And the wolves basically reintroduce themselves. They, all we got to do is basically quit quit killing them on sight, and they re- restored. And and um, the, the sandhill crane, we we had those things driven down to, we're back in all the Leopolds there of the 1930s and 40s. He thought we'd never see sandhill cranes in Wisconsin again. That they're driven down to a point where they're they're bound for extinction here, extirpation. But they bounced back. You know, they've come back. Canada, the Canada the geese. Uh, I'm. Now, you guys probably are too young to remember, but I remember back in the eighties, you're we were allowed one goose a year in, in Wisconsin. <laughs> you know, you, you shot one goose, you were done. You got your tag and you shot it and you go on home and you're happy. And wow. now, you know, it I haven't hunted geese now for a number of years, but I every time I see those big flocks settling on corn cut cornfields around here, I have my blood pressure goes up right away. I wish I was out there. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I am not the biggest fan of the flavor of goose. Um, I usually have to cook it in, um, you know, barbecue mm-hmm. sauce or something. Yeah. So um, I actually, it, it's it's uh, it's funny what you just said, because um, as somebody who harvests wild rice and somebody like, like uh-huh. myself, who's I'm trying to reestablish wild rice all over around me in Michigan. And um, one of the biggest predators of the plant is uh Canada geese Hmm. so um me wanting to hunt geese is actually not for 
so much for the meat. Of course, I'll eat the meat, but it is uh, that's a secondary thing. The real reason that I want to kill geese is because there's too dang many of them. <laughs> there's a lot of geese. It's, got, it's gotten personal, huh? Yeah. Well, you know, uh, what what is it? The statistics that I read before is that like a single family of geese can eat like three acres of growing wild rice, like the wow. greens. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So it's I, I uh, wouldn't they're, know. they're pretty detrimental. Um, yeah. There's the um, Bay Mills Indian Reservation in the UP, and mm-hmm. they are actively doing a restoration project for wild rice. And one of the things that they've been encountering is geese have just been messing up their their reintroduction um, or reintroduction. So wow. what they're um, doing is basically trying to you know kill a lot of geese up there. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So one of the articles that you wrote, um, uh-huh. and I know this. I've heard this lure or legend and story before, but now it's actually been kind of the one with the the two hunters, out-of-state hunters that go into the Michigan bar and start talking. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's kind yeah. of an interesting story. Can you kind of talk about that? And, like, how much research? I mean, there had to have been some, some digging, pretty deep digging to find all the old uh, articles and things on that to compound upon it. Yeah. I, I um, this, is, this is one of the, I think, fun things about, what I do for a living is, you know, I, I had written a couple of articles probably two or three years ago now about a, a Wisconsin warden who was murdered uh, in the green Bay area by a, by a um, kind of this recluse type guy. He, he hunted and trapped. I think he was a trapper too, but he was just kind of a recluse, but he killed, killed this warden and buried him and de- he decapitated, decapitated him and then buried him. It was just a gruesome story. And after I wrote that story and Meat Eater ran it, I got a, got an email from a guy or uh, he co- some guy contacted me from Michigan. And he said, you should um, look into the story about him. He mentioned this um, story of um, the two, well, they're, they're kinda ha- they were kind of half-assed deer hunters. They really weren't serious deer hunters. <laughs> and he talked about how they'd, they'd lived in the D- Detroit area. And he kind of gave me some background on it. And I, I looked up this book he recommended. Um, it, was, it was a book called... Um, a dark night or something, or I forget the, I forget all the details already. You know, I, 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 I sound like an old man, but I, I, I write so much <laughs> mm-hmm. and then I move on to the next topic so fast that I, I start forgetting the details real quickly. But, um, but there was a good book written about it, but also I, I went on, um, newspapers.com It's this great website where you can uh, buy a, you know, short time subscriptions to it. Then just start typing in the search engine what you're looking for, and you get up, start getting all these articles from the Detroit Free Press that covered the the, the case and the and the trial and everything else. That, you know, and they eventually caught these two brothers and prosecuted them for for these guys' murders. But um, to kind of for the people who aren't aware of the story, that there's these two guys, lifelong friends, are like in their um, I think they're like 27, 28 years old in that age group, and they had, they had told one guy was married, one guy had a girlfriend, and they had told their wife and girlfriend that then they go up to the, the family cabin up in northwestern Michigan for the second week of deer season. Well, then it, they never arrived. And instead, they'd gone. It took a long time for this all to kind of um, be um, investigated and and, um, and verified. But apparently, instead of going up to the family cabin, they went up north to the northeast part of Michigan and spent the weekend basically carousing and pissing off the locals. 
And the one thing that I just struck me, I think all people who ever go visit visit um, rural bars know that um, if you're if you're an outsider in a local bar up north or out in a rural area of anywhere in in, in the world, probably you keep a low profile. You don't irritate the locals. But apparently, these guys um, both were um, making un really um, ugly type of um, advances toward women, grabbing their butts. Act, they're just humping all sorts of weird shit where they just shouldn't be doing <laughs> that kind of stuff in a bar and and, and um eventually they, they um basically irritated a couple of guys who were were known locally as being hardened criminals that you, people were you know really afraid of mm-hmm. and and one thing that was interesting was that they no one really knows how they got out of this bar um, if they were basically um, arms behind their back and and shoved out and then beaten up, um, and taken away and beaten up and killed, or if they just lured them out of the bar with with um, promises of drugs or something else, no one really knows how they got out of the bar. But they created the scene in the bar, basically um, triggered a near fight a couple times. Uh, police the police were called. The police didn't show up though. Eventually, they ended up in a field about a mile away. And they got they were both beaten for the baseball bat, and it was just a gruesome murder. And it just uh, went, took a long time. Uh, you know, they, they beat, basically clubbed them to death. Wow. And a a woman that that happened to a woman um, who had been in the bar lived. In, she lived in a trailer not too far away from um, the bar, maybe a mile away. And she had seen these vehicles go go flying past her her um her trailer out in this field nearby. And then she sneaked out with her boyfriend to see what was going on. Cause she'd hear, she could hear screaming and hollering. And, and um, she described it as a metal ping. Of, it was basically oh. the, the aluminum bat hitting these guys in the head. And she sneaked out and witnessed um, the murders. And then, then um, lived in fear for 18 years. Oh. And eventually uh, an investigator tracked her down after about 16 years. He, because she had she had confided to a couple of friends at different times what she'd seen, and then these friends um, called you know notified the police that they need need to talk to her, but she was deathly afraid of um, talking to anyone from the police because she knew these guys that had done the killings were very capable of killing her. I mean, she was really in fra- in fear of her own life. So anyway, she um, eventually. After about two years of this detective befriending her and gaining her trust, she finally told them in a you know, in a deposition what she'd seen, and then that finally gave them enough proof to bring these guys, you know, arrest these guys, bring them in, and you know, go into court and and, and prosecute them. And now they're 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 still alive. They're serving their um their you know their, their life in prison. There's no chance of her ever being paroled. She died about I think. The woman that testified against them, I think she died like in her early 60s, late 50s, maybe. Um, not too long, couple, oh, like maybe five, six years, seven years after the after the trial. She didn't live her whole long after that. But, but you know, she, um, I always think how it must have been to live for 18 years, that kind of fear, worrying about these guys showing up in her doorstep and, and doing the same to her. And, but she eventually, um, you know, came around and, and 
gave the information and that that's how they finally got those guys but they but these guys were really the story i i, talk, I tracked down tom henderson the author of this book i was telling you about that tom wrote this definitive book on on the, on the murders and the story he tells the kind of um give you an idea of what these guys were like to be around they were having a barbecue one summer and they thought they're running low on meat you know they're then they're barbecuing a pig or something and when they when they realized they didn't have enough meat to, to serve all their friends that that come over they actually went down they knew a neighbor had um uh some cattle out in this field and they drove over to the guy's field one of them shot a cow they um they got they got their chainsaws out butchered this thing with chainsaws in the field and hauled the hauled the the slabs out in their truck and just went back and continued the their barbecue as if um this is what you do you know you just take the neighbor's cow and and slaughter it like that and and you think like this henderson said you know what kind of people are capable of that you know, it's acting like the neighbor's cow is, is that they're entitled to that cow. And then there's the cut it up with, with chainsaws. You know, just brutal, brutal stuff. And then wow. the, the part of the story, too, that I um, talked about in my article was that um, it's very possible. There's the nerf. You know, the thing is, the, the police never found the, these these victims. Um, they, they drove like a Ford Bronco. They never found the Bronco. They never found their three or four guns they had with them for for hunting, and they had they had handguns too. They never found the bodies. Never found any physical evidence to tie these guys to a murder. It was just it was all basically um, uh, circumstantial evidence and and and, uh, and eyewitness accounts. But it was just um, one of the stories in there that I remember too is that they had these. Um, they they they'd threat they'd threaten people all the time, including her. That um, they'd say, "Pigs got to eat too." Well, they one of their acquaintances apparently was a pig farmer, and these guys raised pigs, had pigs, and they'd they think what happened is these guys ran those bodies through a a, a chipper, and they just fed the 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 meat and bones to their pigs. That's some Fargo just, stuff like there. Say, just. <laughs> You know, awful stuff that you can't you can't make it up. Wow. You know, and so I, that was my my more recent meat eater piece. That you know, was this brutal murder of these Michigan guys in, uh, you know, it, <laughs> it makes your skin crawl <clears throat> when you're reading the details. And that the Detroit Free Press had a lot of really interesting articles about it too, where they they had big stories about um all these different characters involved in the story because there's there's multiple people that disappeared over the years you know that there are people who were there at the time and then all of a sudden they just disappeared and i started when i was interviewing this tom tom henderson about it i said well what about this person what about that person what happened to them and, and he said you know when you're running that crowd and you disappear these are the kind of people they ran with and, and they could have, you know, they're into drugs, they're into alcohol. They're just really leading hard scrabble lives. And so it wasn't unusual for, for people like that to d- just disappear. They'd, they'd, they'd um, take off, not, not show up ever again. And, and either they, they, um, they died 
they were murdered or else they just moved away. That no one really knows this. They really weren't your not your normal um people like you and me. <laughs> so hmm. yeah, it's it's a real um I really I I wrote that article and I just kept well, I'm working on it, just thinking, man, this is a different world. I never I you know, most of us don't come across people like that who are just so callous that they can kill people and not have apparently any 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 conscience about it and and do things as basic as stealing your neighbor's cow and chopping it up in his field then dragging it out and not having any remorse (laughs) just really hard people well you probably do come across them you just don't realize it oh yeah yeah (laughs) yeah and you hope that's you hope it stays that way you know yeah yeah um so uh pat um You've been involved in the deer and deer hunting industry for a really long time, and I see behind you you got a lot of camo. Um, uh-huh. You're uh, you're really into deer hunting. Do you do any other kind of hunting? I um, people have actually teased me about that over the years. About um, when I go goose hunting, I'm thinking about deer hunting. When I go fishing, I'm thinking about deer hunting I'm with and you. so forth. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really, I really love deer hunting. But uh, in, in in recent years, um, starting around 2005, I started hunting out west for elk, hmm. and I'll never I'll never claim to be a, a great elk hunter, but I'm a persistent elk hunter. So I've gotten I've gotten a, um, well, at least three or four bulls and you know, about three or four cows. I think, I think I have I think I have a total of six elk now over the years, and I got I think I got five of them bull hunting now, and I really I really enjoy it because I I like the the thing I like about it is it's a real physical challenge. You know, it's um, not only a hunting challenge, but it's to hunt the mountains, you realize it's um, it's not like your typical Wisconsin whitetail hunt where you park and walk maybe a quarter of a mile at the most usually and sit <laughs> in the stand. You know, elk hunting is it's pretty high intensity stuff, you know, just getting yourself up the mountain each each morning and getting back in there and then if you get one hauling it back out i, I really like that I, I i um i wish i could say i was more into um uh, i haven't done much bird hunting in recent years but i used to goose hunt a lot mm-hmm. i like that and i my i hang around buddies who are good good grouse hunters but i i'm a miserable grouse hunter i i, <laughs> I go and i just i'm always one of these people who I'm still more inclined to go to point at the bird and go, ah, oh, there goes one. Instead of realizing <laughs> that I should be pointing at it with a shotgun, you know, it's just, um, I'm just not, not very good at it. But, but I, um, I, I find it, I still like to my other big, my big love when it comes to the outdoors is, is um, I love bluegill fishing and perch <laughs> fishing. I, I, I do a little musky fishing, but not much. Cause it, I was, I'm more into the catch and eat. I like I like to eat fish, so I I, I and I like to eat um, perch and bluegills above all else. Okay, but, but I but I, but I like walleyes and I like northern pike. I, I I troll a couple times with my road. I have a I have a cedar boat road trolling road trolling um, boat I built, and I I enjoy musky road trolling a couple times a summer, but I I never um, get real serious about muskies. So I I always figure that's um. I like eating fish too much to get get full time into muskies. <laughs> Me too. That's that's one of the things I was going to ask you, and you covered it because 
I myself, I, I think the same way. Um, you know, you could bass fish all you want, and I do enjoy it. Sometimes I fish tournament <laughs> stuff. But at the end of the day, I want to eat the fish. I'm more of a pan yeah. fish guy. If I got the choice between a walleye I'm gonna choose a per- and a perch, I'm going to choose a perch. So. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, 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 other thing, the other thing I really enjoy, just haven't done it much in recent years, but when my oldest daughter was still around um, before she went off to the Navy and, and college and whatever, um, I, w- I really loved – uh, trolling for salmon on Lake Michigan. We, we we used to live on the other side of the state, so I can get over to Lake Michigan and, and um, fish for half a day. If it's only an hour and a half drive over, I think we lived in Wapak, Wisconsin, which is an hour and a half from the Lake Michigan shoreline. And I I really I got pretty good at that. I, you know, it's like everything else with hunting and fishing. When you get into something, next thing you know, you spend a thousand dollars on new <laughs> new junk. You know, and it's and you just but then you get into it you learn how to do stuff and you pay attention to what other people are doing and and you know it's it's um it's fun to fight those big fish yeah uh, so i i get a kick out of it plus i like eating them i i like eating salmon yeah so, yeah so- i got I, I got a ton of friends around here that go out you know because i live in traverse city so yeah we get we get a lot of uh free salmon uh, well on occasion you know yeah like we'll, yeah. we'll get people people like my old neighbor just gave us like so many fillets it was unbelievable that's awesome <laughs> like what are, well, why are, why are you fishing he's he's like i don't know i just really <laughs> like it well when you mentioned uh traverse traverse city that's from my memories of the um the lakefront marathon i think it's called they call it the lakefront or the bayshore marathon bayshore marathon thank you mm-hmm. lakefronts yeah. over in milwaukee um but the bayshore marathon um, it goes up that I think it's like a peninsula, isn't it? That that mm-hmm. runs up, and then you turn around, and come back, and so you're looking at that big. I think it's Grand Traverse Bay, isn't it? That that runs yep. along, and yep. that's like I kept doing that when I'm out there running along. In my case, kind of uh, <laughs> uh, suffering along, and um, <laughs> I, I I would look out in that bay and watch those boats and thinking. When are they catching it? When are they getting these salmon this time of year? And I just always, you know, it's such a, it was a, one of those beautiful days. And that's a beautiful region that you live in. But that's all I could think about was what I, what I would be doing if that was me out in that boat. And it's just, it's a, it's something about big water that really I find, I find um, real fascinating. You know, because it's when you, when you have a, um, you're fishing in those kind of waters, you don't know what you'll get next. You know, probably usually salmon, but once in a while you get a lake trout, and once in a while you get a big brown trout or something. At least in, in Wisconsin. Oh, it's uh, Grand it, Traverse it's, Bay. It's fun. Grand, yeah, Grand Traverse Bay is mostly lake trout huh. and and whitefish, and then oh. um, and then the bay won't be inundated with salmon until like basically the fall. Like, uh, was oh, that right? Summer. Okay, yeah. interesting. Yeah, because yeah, they they kind of stay out in the real big water. The, yeah. the bay is the bay is kind of like um closed off. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I'm but, lost um, when it comes it, to open water, like big water fishing. Yeah, I'm used to small lakes. <laughs> That's yeah, I'm I'm friends with my friend, um, the uh, tribal fisherman here for the Peshawarstown oh, yeah. uh, tribe, and yeah. um, Ed is uh an amazing guy and he catches a lot of lake trout whitefish and occasionally he'll catch burbot and yeah. Um, oh yeah yeah and then i'll uh i'll ask him please if you catch one you know keep it for yeah. me do you really uh, want yeah. to eat the burbot though why oh my god they're amazing they taste oh, bur- so good yeah that's one thing that i i um when i was first out of the navy back in the early 80s 
I remember catching a couple of bourbon on, on a lake called Lake Poygan. It's in East Central Wisconsin. It's part of the Winnebago system. And I, I didn't know what they were. They're I just knew they were this ugliest sin, ugliest sin. And they wrap around your arm when you pull them out of the water. Uh, and they, they almost look like a snake, you know, their head. And so I just, I remember unhooking them and, and just putting them back down the hole. <laughs> and and then, I, then then I learned that they're they're freshwater cod, and uh, then I felt like an idiot because I thought God cod's some of the best eating fish there are, you know. And right. and but 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 I I still have not had um once I learned learned what they really were and how good they were supposed to be, I haven't caught one since, of course. You know, it's the way, <laughs> the way it That's... goes. Oh man! Well, you will. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I hope so. Yeah. So Pat, uh, we're kind of rolling on on the time here, but uh, okay. So just before we go, I just kind of want you to tell everybody, you know, where they can find your articles if they want yeah. to, you know, reach out to you to maybe give you a lead on a really awesome story or anything like yeah. that. How do they go about but, that? Well, that's one thing I was gonna say. I I appreciate that um your your offer there because I, I do get a lot of good um a lot of my good stories ideas come from people, you know, come from my my readers and and it's it's um i always tell people to you know they'll say can i can i send you an idea can i can i write to you this and i always tell them everyone else does you might as well too you know because <laughs> you're the friendly ones you know because the people who don't like me or mad at me wasn't they don't have any problem contacting me so <laughs> but yeah my, my um my website is, is patrickdurkinoutdoors.com it's all just all one word, Patrick Durkin, and Durkin is spelled D-U-R-K-I-N. But PatrickDurkinOutdoors.com. You can find me um, at at um, Patrick Durkin Outdoors um, at Instagram and on Facebook too. So, but yeah, I'm pretty easy to find. And if you ever want to read, I, I have a my website has all my um, my I carry all my weekly newspaper columns on my website, and and also it's not it's not very hard just to type in my name and Meat Eater. And you'll get a, a, I think I've written over a hundred articles over the last five years for Meat Eater too. So there's lots of stuff there, and and they they um actually have a, a queue set up with all my with my my little picture and then all my article articles underneath it. So you can I'm pretty easy to find. And I also um I've written a lot over the over the years for American Hunter magazine. And so they'll if you Google my name in American Hunter, you'll find quite a few article, articles there too. So. It's um, I I always feel real fortunate to have done you know been in the career I, I'm in because it's it's um, I'm st- I'm still working now I I'm not working um, when I was freelancing full time I was pretty much regularly working sixty seventy hours a week, and now I'm now I'm cut back to a normal forty hour work week and fi- trying to find a little time for fishing but I I um, I I encourage people to get in touch with me. Um, I can't, you know, one of my favorite things I, I kind of chuckle about, you know, a little aside here is that I'll get, I'll write a column and my columns typically run a thousand words and I, quite often I'll get, I'll get emails from, from guys and they'll write me uh, an email with, with uh, about a thousand word questions, <laughs> you know, and, and then want me to answer all their questions. And I, I have to politely explain that, you know, the only thing I can sell basically is my time. And I so I have to mm-hmm. sell it to people who are actually paying me to write. 
You know, so yeah. I can't answer these real long emails that have a, have a ton of questions. I can answer a, a question here and there, but I can't um, I can't spend all day writing on something for free because I, I have a thing written on my desk here. Um, yeah, it's, it's a guy named um, Samuel Johnson. He was a great writer, philosopher in England back in the 1700s. You know, so this is like 300 years ago. <laughs> He had, a, he had a great line where he says, no man but a blockhead ever wrote except for money. And that reminds <laughs> me, <laughs> if you, you know, write for a living, you better get paid for it. Right. So, so <laughs> some of your ideas, but don't expect me to write you a book in response, you know, so. Yeah. That's a good idea. Well, hey, yeah. I really, I really appreciated talking to you and hearing all your, um, your stories. You're a really awesome writer. And um, well, thank you. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yep. Keep doing what you're doing, Pat. Uh, Thank you guys. I I do. I do enjoy reading them. That's kind of why I reached out to you. So. Well, I appreciate you. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm I'm always flattered. Honestly, I I still think it's fun to, to get these kind of, these kind of offers and opportunities to talk to folks. Cause you know, writing is not, not something that you always, um, there's a lot of time sitting at a computer screen and my, um, my youngest daughter one time, when she was in high school, this is like, you know, half a lifetime ago for her now. I remember her coming home from high school one day and saying, um, so-and-so wants to know if he can job shadow you, uh, some some guy in her class. He was like, she's like in 10th grade. And she told him, he, he, asked, he asked my daughter, could you ask your dad if I could job shadow him for a day? And Carson looked at him and says, why would you want to job shadow my dad? He sits in his office and stares at his computer all day. And then... <laughs> I always thought that's what my daughters think of me. You know, <laughs> this is what I do for a living. I stare at my computer all day. <laughs> so, wow. But but actually, you know, the reality is that it, that's not that far from the truth. It's kind of like outdoor writing is kind of like um. I think it's kind of like selling bait. You know, you you get to hear you get to hear who's catching fish and where they're catching them, but you don't don't get to catch them yourself. Right. You're too busy, you know, selling bait. So as an outdoor writer, it's kind of the same thing. You're too busy staring at the inner workings of your own yeah, mind yeah, on you, the screen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're too busy, you're too busy, you know, talking on the phone and taking notes and reading and staring, like, like she says, staring at the computer ball. I'm not staring at the computer. I'm, I'm reading, you know, I'm, you know, highlighting stuff to, to remember from my next article. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, Pat, um, thank you. I, for one, am gonna uh, look forward to re-listening to this again in the future. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. You bet. Uh-huh. And once again, thank you so much for listening to the Publicly Challenged podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show, and if you did, please subscribe on whatever platform it is you're listening to. Also, if you could leave a review, that would help us out. And you can check us out on Instagram or at publiclychallenge.com. And once again, thank you so much for listening to the show.